Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. My name is Karl Michael, and as always, I'm here with my co-host and colleague, Simon. Hi, Simon. Sunny greetings from Berlin to Vienna. How are you? Glad to be here. I'm doing great. And with us today is a deep expert in digital assets and currencies from an academic as well as a business point of view. A very warm welcome to Alexander Bechtel. Alex, great to have you with us here. Hi, Karl Michael. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me today. Alex is the head of digital asset currency strategy at Corporate Bank of Deutsche Bank. In addition, he's a researcher and a lecturer at the University of St. Gallen, and he's based in Switzerland as well. Some of our listeners might know him already uh, because he gained some publicity from his podcast, Bitcoin, Fiat and Rock and Roll, which he co-hosts with two other experts in this field. And I can only say I like this format very much, especially the weekly five-minute Friday briefings on a selected topic. We can only uh, recommend to our listeners to have a look at the website uh, of this podcast because it has a great archive of shows, in particular dealing with uh, central bank digital currencies and the digital euro. And the digital euro... That is exactly the topic of our show today. And here we mean the digital euro of the ECB, so the European Central Bank. Anything you hear, dear listener, is by no means investment advice. You hear the personal opinions of Alex, Simon and me here. For any investments, do your own research. And okay, I think enough of intro. Let's get things going. And as always, we like to give our listeners, at least the ones who do not uh, know Alex already, a little bit background on him. So, Alex, when did you enter the crypto world and the world of digital assets and, and, and why and how, how, how did this come? So I think this was around 2013, 2014, during my master studies in St. Gallen at the University of St. Gallen. I, I studied a master in quantitative economics and finance. And uh, some of my colleagues together with me, we somehow discovered Bitcoin. And before understanding what it really is, we started trading Bitcoin. <laughs> and that was kind of my entry into this, into this whole world. And it took me a couple of years before I then really took some time and tried try to understand what Bitcoin actually is, what cryptocurrencies are. And I have been always motivated to yeah, get in touch with this field from a monetary point of view. I guess you can enter the Bitcoin and blockchain space from many angles. It can be IT, it can be game theory, it can be monetary, the monetary side. And I, I always looked at this whole space through my monetary theory glasses, uh, since this is my background, I'm kind of a normal, normal, let's say, economist who is dealing a lot with, um, with monetary theory and monetary policy. And this is why I became interested in Bitcoin. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I personally entered the blockchain space from the ICO's perspective, originally coming from venture capital. So everyone has a different angle to this uh, ecosystem. But now I think you made your hobby or your passion also your job, right? Or your profession. And at Deutsche Bank, as we said, you're heading digital assets and currency strategy there. What role does blockchain in general or what role do digital assets play in your daily work at Deutsche Bank? 
I mean, that's the core part of my work, of course. My my job is mainly about blockchain, digital assets and digital currencies. And it's kind of I'm trying to answer the question, how does blockchain technology, how do digital assets and how do digital currencies affect the business model of banks or financial intermediaries even even more broadly and what should a bank such as Deutsche Bank do in order to get we call this internally here a digital asset ready which basically means what does a bank such as Deutsche Bank need to do in order to still play a role in 15 20 30 years when presumably at least parts of our business processes and value chain run over over blockchains or distributed ledger technologies in a world where we use digital currencies, in a world where we trade digital assets on, on, on DLTs and tokenized form, etc. Uh, okay, so that's a very broad view on this field. Today, we will narrow it down a little bit, right, to central bank digital currencies, so CBDCs. And before we dive deep into this field, maybe a few introductory remarks for, for listeners who might not be so much into this topic. So in general, uh, I mean, there's a lot of overlap between central bank, digital currencies, between terms like programmable money. You can do this on a blockchain. You do not necessarily have to do it on a blockchain. There are so-called retail-focused digital currencies and wholesale-focused central bank digital currencies. It's a little bit a mess for people who first enter this field. But let's pick like four terms and clarify them before, again, we dive into a deeper discussion. First, I think from a kind of technology perspective, there's a difference between so-called account-based central bank digital currencies and token-based digital currencies. So account-based digital currencies, what does this mean? What we have here is that all transactions are rooted through an account, and this account is set up by the central bank for each user. On the other hand side, if we look at token-based central bank currencies, here transactions are approved based on a public-private key, pair and digital signature, so everything we know from digital assets space. The main difference between both is that the token-based system does not require access to the user's identity, as is the case for account-based CBDC. So that would be an interesting topic to discuss with you, which route the central banks most, uh, most probably will go. And I think we'll somehow touch upon this during our talk. The second differentiation I would like to make is between retail central bank digital currencies and wholesale central bank digital currencies. So retail central bank digital currencies is typically about payments between individuals and, and businesses. So these CBDCs would be in kind of competition to what we currently use, like cash, cards, and, and online transfers. The wholesale view is uh, here we talk about payments and settlements of transactions between financial institutions. So not individuals and businesses, but between banks, uh, for example. So if we take all the possible use cases for such central bank currencies, it's a broad uh, universe. We can have consumer payments. We can have faster cross-border payments. 
Automated M2M transactions and IoT applications can be facilitated with central bank digital currencies. So what do you think? What's for you the most appealing or the most convincing use case for a central bank digital currency? So, I mean... If, if you if you tell me, I mean, I'm allowed to design the CBDC as I like, and it's only really about the use case, because now you talked, of course, about uh, many, many different possible designs. I would say for a CBDC, the main and most interesting use case is actually to serve as a cash lag, as a settlement, a means of settlement in uh, the trading with uh, digital assets. And here we are now talking about the wholesale CBDC. And that's actually uh, the version of a CBDC, as you said, that's only used between financial intermediaries, in particular banks. And that's something the end user would not really have uh, contact with. And I think it's a pretty much a no-brainer if we believe that we will we are going to deal with digital assets in the future, that we also need tokenized digital money. And today, if you look at a, a trade with a security, let's say a stock with a stock or a, or a bond, the cash lag of these trades are always is always central bank reserves usually. So it, it's happening in the interbank market, right? And we basically need to bring these central bank reserves into the blockchain world and bringing the central bank reserves that are used as a cash lag in, in the trade with assets today into a tokenized blockchain world means we need to tokenize these central bank reserves. And this would then be a wholesale CBDC. And for me, actually, even though in Europe we mainly discuss the retail CBDC case, I think it's way more intuitive to talk about use cases for a for a wholesale CBDC. I think that's a quite interesting point, and we're definitely getting back to that argument later again. So right now, I think the feeling, the general feeling, is that most news we hear about CBDCs actually being developed are coming from the Far East. Uh, especially as China already is pretty much a cashless society where even beggars on the street are taking digital payments and uh, only foreigners basically still use paper notes in order to pay for noodles or the daily necessities. Do you think we are kind of quite far away or a lot further away than our trading partners in the Far East from having cultural acceptance for a CBDC in general? And do you think that this might change over the next five to 10 years? Or do you think we will have very strong opposition from the political side against any form of CBDC? What's your feeling right now? Yeah, I, I mean, here we're now talking about retail CBDCs, right? So the digital yuan, for instance, that is being pushed in, in China is, is a retail CBDC, which means it's basically a form of, of digital cash. It's, it, it means the central bank is issuing digital money, which is accessible to the end user. That's a retail CBDC. And that's also, as I said, the main discussion that's taking place in the euro area at the moment. And when it comes to the acceptance, so I think you differentiate it between now political acceptance and, and maybe acceptance from the end user. I believe that the end, it, it totally depends, of course, how this uh, digital euro or the CBDC will be designed. I believe the end user in Europe would not care if the CBDC is just another an additional means of payment. So if it's similar to, let's say, paying with a credit card, similar to paying with, I, I don't know, a, a normal bank transfer, if, if a CBDC doesn't add anything to this, end users just won't care. Maybe some will use a CBDC because they like the app or, or not, right? So I think that's kind of one danger the central bank is facing, that they are introducing just another digital payment method. 
and and this is why I believe, and maybe also coming back to your first question from Carl Michael, what's kind of the use case now answering this question for retail CBDC, in my opinion, a retail CBDC should solve a problem which existing digital means of payment are not solving. And as soon as we have this, I think there there is a good chance that end users will be interested and there will be a value add for end users. And just to give you the, the two to three main value propositions I see such a CBDC could make, it's mainly that end users are able to make offline payments digitally. That's, that would be one thing. The second thing would be that end users are able to do anonymous payments, or at least that they are able to kind of preserve their privacy when, when making digital payments. And the third thing is a bit of a bigger point. A, a retail CBDC should serve as an additional resilient means of payment that works independently of any private solutions. Because if we think about cash disappearing in the future, maybe potentially, then we would be fully dependent on private payment solutions. And I think it's a good idea that there is an additional payment system that is provided by the public sector. Today, this payment system is called cash. In the future, this payment system might be called CBDC. That's a payment system that is resilient and works independently of the private sector. And if you design your CBDC in such a way, and it is clear that it's kind of a value add for end users, I think the acceptance will be high. And coming back to your uh, point with the digital yuan, I think currently the digital yuan in China does not create any additional value for the end users. It's kind of pushed because it's it's cheap. It's uh, You can use it for free. Also, the merchants can use it for free because it's subsidized by the PBOC, by the People's Bank of China, the central bank. But the product itself, in my opinion, has no added value for the end user at the moment. To maybe go into that a bit deeper, is it even still necessary to have such a, such a retail-facing CBDC? If we look at, for example, DAI or other Ethereum-based stablecoins that um, just two days ago during the big market meltdown, we have seen that they were able to hold their peg to the US dollar a lot closer than, for example, um, Tether or other directly backed stablecoins. Why can't we use such an open source solution? Why would we even need a CBDC for that if open source projects can already provide something quite similar. Hmm. I mean, two points. First would be DAI is not the euro uh, or, not, or not the US dollar in the case of DAI. It's a, a derivative, so to say, of the of the US dollar, right? DAI, it's, it's kind of like an ETF trying to replicate the, the value of the US dollar. And the question is just, if you could get the same thing, meaning as a coin on a token on a blockchain, but you get the original one and not the one who is trying to replicate the price of the original one, you would probably use the original one if it is able to do the same as, as DAI, right? So that's maybe one thing. If you, if you believe that a central bank should not be the provider of money at all, you should also probably not use DAI, but something like Bitcoin, right? That's, that's of course, a totally different discussion. But if you believe that a central bank should be the provider of money and you like using the US dollar, you probably prefer to use the original US dollar instead of a, a derivative of the US dollar. And, and the second point is, of course, coming back to my first answer. In my opinion, a CBDC should offer a value add to existing um, payment solutions. And um, being anonymous would be one value add that it has uh, over DAI, for instance, which is, of course, not uh, fully anonymous. It's, it's pseudonymous. 
Um, you cannot make any offline payments with Dai, so this would be an additional um, reason why you would why you might prefer a CBDC over something like Dai. I think those are quite valid arguments. That makes a lot of sense. Maybe let's get back to the non-retail facing aspect or side of this potential CBDC. Now, in the current or traditional banking system, of course, we have commercial banks. We have the central bank and then we have a large network of many, many different banks that create and distribute well money, cash, and get it again to their customers. Now, if we had a central bank digital currency that would kind of just go completely around them, do you think that this would be well met with acceptance or there would be large amounts of opposition towards such a project? So I don't think there would be opposition because I think banks in general, and I mean, we are discussing this among the banks already, and um, I do not know any bank who is like really actively opposing CBDC. It's we just need to make sure that if we introduce CBDC, that it's not uh, disrupting the current ecosystem too much, because of course there are there are opportunity costs, right? If you if you are kind of destroying the banking sector by taking over the business of banks, uh, this has of course implications, um, because banks are not banks are not only the provider of money; they are also doing other other jobs, and and if you destroy the banking sector, this has of course implications. But I think the discussions are pretty pretty fair at the moment. So the ECB, of course, knows that by introducing a CBDC, it will impact the market, the, the, our monetary system, because it's kind of an additional form of money. It's a new form of money. But by introducing a CBDC, you're not increasing the, the monetary, the money supply, right? So if you say, I have a new form of money, but I'm not increasing the money supply, if people want to use CBDC, the money has to come from somewhere. So you could say maybe people are exchanging their cash into CBDC, and this is probably going to happen to a certain extent. But people will most likely also exchange some of their deposits, bank deposits, into, into CBDC. And then we are, of course, in a situation where there is a danger of a disintermediation of the banking sector because uh, bank deposits, the deposits of, of clients, are, of course, a very important funding source for banks. And, and you also mentioned maybe what, what is if payments do not run through banks anymore, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe uh, to a certain extent, this is this is going to happen. There will be, a, to a certain extent, a disintermediation of the banking sector. But I'm, to be honest, I'm quite relaxed. I do not think that this will harm the banking sector in any sense. And, and let me give you two reasons for that. The first reason is, even if some of the deposits now flow out of the banking sector, banks, at the moment at least, are kind of swimming in liquidity. I mean, banks do not do not know what to do with all the liquidity they get from the central bank. Actually, what they are doing currently, they have to deposit it back at the central bank and they are paying negative interest rates on those on those deposits. So actually, bank deposits are currently kind of a, a problem or liquidity in general is, is kind of a problem currently for banks because they have too much of it. So at least currently in the, in the current um, environment, a certain outflow of, of deposits might even, banks might even profit from that, right, instead of being harmed. And I think the second reason is that in a CBDC world, banks would still play a central role because it's it's not possible that central banks are taking over all the account management and, and payment um, processing, which is currently done by, by banks and, and, and payment service providers. So it 
looks very much as if banks would still be the take over the account management. Banks are doing the KYC, as so know your customer, the anti-money laundering checks, the counter-terrorist financing checks. Banks are still, and together with payment service providers, are going to provide uh, payment rails for CBDCs, etc., etc. So CBDCs, CBDC does do not mean that uh, banks or other financial intermediaries w won't play any role anymore in, in such a system. Alex, I think that somehow leads to a question on which kind of infrastructure the whole piece would run. Let's take the wholesale CBDC. So, I mean, Ripple has a kind of similar value proposition for, let's say, interbanking clearance and settlement on the one hand side. Some people argue the CBDC will run on Ethereum. Others say, no, that will definitely be a private chain. And we even have other systems currently available. If as we know, there's a TIP system, so target instant payment settlement system in Europe, which is fully centralized. Which infrastructure do you think will in the end win this race? Or which one is, in your opinion, the most suitable? So, so I guess... To answer this question, I, I, I maybe allow me to go one step back and make again this difference between retail and wholesale CBDC, which you introduced in the beginning. I believe the, the, the discussion around wholesale CBDC is a pure technology discussion. So we already have kind of a wholesale CBDC, which is called central bank reserves. So banks already have accounts at the central bank and they already have kind of their digital euro. What banks do not have is a tokenized digital euro, which, which they could use. So if we discuss whether we need or if we if we wonder whether we need a, a wholesale CBDC or not, it's actually the question is simply, do we want to tokenize these already existing central bank reserves? So that's the wholesale CBDC question. The retail CBDC question is a bit more involved because here the first question is, is not do we do we want to tokenize the euro? The question is actually, do we want to provide our end users, our customers, direct access to a digital euro? And this digital euro has nothing to do with a blockchain or DLT or tokens in the first step. The question is actually first, do we want to give them access to a an account at the central bank instead of only accounts at banks? And then only as a second step, you could also ask the question, should it be an account at the central bank or should it be a tokenized form of, of a digital euro and uh, in, in a wallet, say? And I think it's always important to keep these two discussions about retail and wholesale apart. And then now, if sorry, if you, if you want to jump in, please. I no, no, that's okay. But that. <laughs> uh, uh, I think it's a very, very clear distinction and uh, it gives our listeners um, a clear view on things. Then let's uh, focus on the wholesale CBDC from an infrastructure perspective. How do you think this will look like? Is it a an infrastructure where we have the central banks operating the nodes or again, have, do we have a Ripple-like uh, setup or do we have a centralized setup? Uh, so something which is out of the blockchain space? So, as I said, I think it has to be a blockchain setup because that's the only reason why we would introduce a, a wholesale CBDC because the non-blockchain setup is already existing. It's called reserves, right? So, and then if we say, okay, let's bring those tokens on a blockchain, I believe it will always be the central bank keeping the full control over this environment. So I do not see, maybe in Europe, we have the special case that we have certain national central banks, which of course might also uh, run nodes. On this blockchain, but I think it will be it will be kind of a DLT, where the or DLT-like setup where the central bank has full control, maybe together with national central banks. 
But the, the important thing here is we would not use DLT because we would like to decentralize the consensus mechanism. The reason why we need DLT in this case is because we want to provide the euro as a token in the blockchain environment in order to use it as a means of payment together with tokenized assets. Right? That's kind of a, a totally different motivation than the motivation you have with Bitcoin, for instance, where you say, I'm tokenizing here money or value or this, this, this digital object because I want to be fully decentralized and I want to decentralize my consensus um, mechanism. It's, it's totally different when we talk about CBDC because the central bank will never decentralize the consensus mechanism about what is a, a correct payment and whatnot. It will always be about, I'm simply trying to offer my money on a new ecosystem in order to make it usable for my end users, for instance, if they want to trade a tokenized form of my money against a tokenized form of an asset, because that's way more efficient than using the money I'm providing today in accounts. Okay, clear. You said in the beginning, if you would be able or you would be in charge of designing such a, a system, especially a retail CBD system, it, it would uh, fulfill three criteria. You said it should be offline having the same kind of value proposition as cash, it should be anonymous. It should be somehow a re resilient kind of something which is a backup for, for any private uh, payment system. Let's touch a little bit on this anonymity issue, which I personally think is very central because this is why a lot of people use cash and no one really want as a consumer full public surveillance in any case yeah that's the consumer view but if we look at uh, what regulators maybe the, the european central bank and governments want is more or less the opposite right they want to be able to control the transactions to prevent any money uh, laundering and prevent terrorist financing so we are in a kind of conflict here so from a technical point of view is there something like controllable anonymity possible and my next question is i mean this does not uh, fall from heaven this question here we know you're working on a respective research project with the university of bayreuth and fraunhofer gesellschaft which is the world's leading applied research organization from germany can you tell us about this project and if it solves this controllable anonymity problem Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do that. So we are we are indeed working on a, a project that tries to combine two things. We want to enable truly or fully anonymous payments, which are at the same time regulatory compliant. And that's uh, really a tricky thing because what we have today, it's, it's of course possible to do completely anonymous digital payments. It's not, that's not a tech, technical issue. Look at Zcash, look at Monero. That's, that's, that's really not a problem. But it's really tough to allow this but at, and at the same time make it regulatory compliant. And that's kind of the, the value proposition, so to say, of our, of our research project here. We have developed a prototype, let's say, which tries to combine these two things. And the way we are doing this is we are taking Zcash as a starting point. And we are kind of extending uh, Zcash. We are, I mean, for the experts here, we are kicking out the UTXO model of Zcash and implement an account-based model. And uh, this this change of the Zcash architecture basically enables enables us to ensure that users of our currency stick to certain rules. So what we can basically check or what we can trace is if a user, for instance, makes transactions below a certain threshold. So, for instance, regulation currently says that 
digital payments are anonymous or you are allowed to do non-KYC payments. So without doing any know your customers up to 150 euro, which is of course a ridiculously small amount, but that's the regulation today. And what we could implement into our proposition is that we say, you can enter this privacy pool. This is how we call it. And you can do transactions to whomever you want up to 150 euro. And we do not know anything about who you are, to whom you are sending the money, how, how big the transactions is, how many transactions you are doing, etc., etc. The only thing we know is that you, you stay below this 150 euro threshold. And the way we are implementing this is through so-called zero knowledge proofs. So this is a way basically of proving something without revealing uh, information about yourself. And we are using this technology in order to make sure that people stay completely anonymous, but at the same time stick to the rules. And how far is this project? Has this project already evolved? So we have basically programmed the prototype. So the code is is kind of working, I would say. And we have also, we had a lot of interviews because we are writing a, a, a scientific paper, uh, an academic paper on about this project. And as part of this, we had a lot of interviews. So I think, I don't know, 15 to 20 interviews with central bankers, regulators, cryptographers, you name it, around the world, actually, where we kind of try to evaluate whether we have missed something or not. And this is also kind of done now. And what we are currently doing is we are writing this uh, academic paper, which hopefully will be published at least as a working paper in the next two or three months. And that's basically the project currently. So we are not thinking about bringing this into production because this would be something completely different. Our goal is here really to show in particular also to the ECB and to the Bundesbank that it's actually possible to, to enable or to allow for completely anonymous digital payments and still stick to the rules. Because this is something you can read in the report of the ECB that, that this is not possible. I've just seen today a section on, on the website of the Bundesbank or in a report where they have like a an FAQ where, it's, where they basically say it's not possible to do digital payments without leaving a trace. You will never be anonymous. And we kind of show in this proof of concept, you could also say that actually it is possible. Now, do you believe there's actual do you believe there's actual interest for that on the side of central banks? As in, of course, if if we are looking more into what uh, Zcash and the likes of Monero are being used for right now with mixers and um, that kind of stuff, if you can make one 149 euro transaction and it's all digital, you could also make uh, 10 or 20 or 100 uh, 149 euro transactions, maybe in a very fast. Um, succession, like I know it from the Chinese speaking area, where if people need to get money out of central China, out of mainland China, they go through Hong Kong and they make dozens, a hundred, maybe even a thousand credit card payments uh, in Hong Kong with many different credit cards that are all under a certain threshold. But of course, authorities there are trying very hard to crack down on this. And yeah, what's your feeling there? Is there even like, Let's say so far the understanding is it's not possible technically, but if it was possible technically, is this something that yeah regulators would be happy about or more cautious? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, maybe first on your point of having kind of multiple accounts, that's exactly the reason why Zcash, for instance, or Monero 
are not regulatory compliant because you could easily, what you could do easily with Monero or Zcash is to say, okay, everyone can only make transactions up to 150 euro. That's not a problem at all to implement it. What you cannot implement in the current model of, of Zcash at least is that everyone can only have one account because there are no accounts, right? It's, it's this UTXO model. And this is why we switched from the UTXO model to an account-based model. And we kind of make sure, and that's actually uh, something very important um, in our solution, that everyone can only open one account. And we have certain measures that ensure this. And that's kind of the reason why we can then credibly implement these, these rules. And yeah, I mean, I mean to, your, to, your, to your question, I believe this will be really interesting because until now, when, when I have talked to central bankers and also when I have read their reports, they were always saying, look, we cannot offer anonymity because it's not reconcilable with current regulations. And our paper basically would hopefully show to them and hopefully convince them that it's doable, that you actually can reconcile this with existing regulations. And then, of course, they would not be able to use this argument anymore that kind of, I mean, we are, it sounds a bit like we are, we are indifferent uh, between offering or not offering anonymity, but we just can't because of regulation. And then if you show, show them, look, it's possible to do it then they kind of have to change their, their strategy. And I, I will be really interested in, in then hearing whether they kind of open up a bit. I mean, to be honest, central banks should not be too worried about anonymous payments or not because it's not their direct not their direct task it's it's more the regulators who should be who should be worried but central banks are, are today offering the the means of payment that enables us to do anonymous payments which is which is cash right and i think it's it would be a very natural way to to basically as a central bank say look if cash disappears in the future let's try to transfer these characteristics of cash which have very very many advantages let's try to transfer these characteristics and replicate them in a digital realm and one very important part of this would be uh, anonymous uh, anonymity or privacy no i totally agree with you there i mean that's super interesting i'm definitely gonna continue following what you guys are doing because i think it will have large implications so uh, as we're talking about the, the european area and our approach let's say to central bank digital currencies. Um, where currently do you feel like we are at? How many years away we are from any sort of proper CBDC, be it commercial or wholesale? I believe that we are... I mean, we haven't even started officially. That's going to supposed to be announced in July this year. And, and then we are kind of, I would say, in the middle if, if we compare us to, to other nations globally. We are not the last ones but we are definitely also not the first ones and when you want to put this into years what the ecb is probably most likely going to do on in july i think 22nd of july is, is the the date of the announcement they are going to announce that they will start a digital euro project officially they will start with a two-year design phase which is i would say mainly conceptually a phase where we discuss about our, our design features, about whether it will be an account, whether it will be a token, whether it will carry an interest rate, et cetera, et cetera. And then after these two years, there will start a two to three year implementation phase where we then build stuff, test stuff in sandbox environments, et cetera. And so if you add this up, right, we are round about at five years, let's say, which would mean that a CBDC will not be ready usable to be rolled out at least on a bigger scale in the euro area before 2026 
We are almost approaching the end of this part of the interview. And at the end, we always ask what we call a kind of golden question. It might be a little bit challenging, or we definitely want to know your opinion on a certain trend or development. This time, it will be about programmability or programmable money, which is often used in the context of CBDCs, but it's definitely not exactly the same thing. But programmability normally means... Um, that in the end, for the good or for the bad, a central bank can prioritize transactions like faster payouts of corona packages or they can block certain transactions, whatever, to companies that are under boycott or people who shouldn't get money because they're criminals. But central banks can also introduce things like negative interest rates on money, so enforce certain things or limit the time until when the digital euro or a central bank currency can be spent. What's your view on this programmability? Is this really necessary? Is it more evil than good? I think it's it's really important to distinguish here between the programmability of money and the programmability of payments. Uh, I, I once wrote an, an article about that with Philip Sanden, Jonas Groß and Victor von Wachter, and, and we proposed a definition and a distinction between these two terms. This has been taken over by the Bundesbank now, so it's, it's hopefully kind of becoming an official definition in Germany. It's really, really important to distinguish the two because a programmable payment means I'm taking money, and this can even be account-based money. And I'm integrating it into programmable environments. So I'm enabling, for instance, smart contracts. It can be a really complex conditional payment, which then in the end triggers a payment. And this payment is made either with account-based money. This payment can be made with a CBDC, with, with other forms of tokenized money. This doesn't really matter because that's just money. And the payment is triggered by a smart contract and the complexity is in the smart contract. That's kind of a programmable payment. And the other thing is programmable money. And this is, you mentioned some use cases of programmable money where we say we are actually programming the money itself. So kind of we are designing the token in a way that it only can serve certain use cases. So for instance, the token loses all its value after a couple of weeks, for instance. And here it, it's always important to make one point. If you program the money itself, it's, it's not money anymore. It's not a fungible, it's not fungible money anymore. I mean, imagine someone would give you a token that loses value after four weeks. You would probably not be able to exchange this token with another token, which is just a normal euro, right? Which will never use, uh, lose its value. So no one would give you a one-to-one -one exchange rate between these two forms of, of tokens. So basically what happens if you program the money itself is it becomes a voucher, right? It becomes a voucher with certain characteristics. And I always say, there are so many interesting use cases when we think about programmable payments and programmable money, and we should definitely uh, do those, in particular also programming the money itself. I'm totally in for that, but we should then simply stop calling it money, right? It's not the euro anymore. We are just using the euro and the whole ecosystem in order to give out, give out vouchers that have a, have a lot of flexibility, so to say. That, that's, a clear, that's a clear point from your side on this programmability. Thank you very much, Alex, for joining our discussion today. It was truly a deep talk. We learned a lot. I think especially of interest is your project on solving the anonymity problem of CBDCs. And as Simon said, we will definitely follow up on this in the future. And thanks, Simon. As always, you were a great co-host here. And last but not least, and foremost, we would like to thank our listeners. We hope you enjoyed the show as much as we did. 
And as a spoiler, we continued our talk with Alex beyond the topic of the digital euro. So next week, we will publish part two of this talk, where we have a discussion with Alex about the future of banking. So tune in if you like this episode and stay loyal to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. All signal, no noise.